Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders, friends, and regenerators. As we jump into Chapter 3 of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken, I'd like for you to think about the last time you were somewhere remote where you couldn't see or hear the mark of civilization. How recent was that moment? Was it last week, last month, a year ago? Or is it further in the rearview mirror than you care to admit? It may just be time to go ahead and unplug and explore the wilds around you. With Chapter 3, we are going to explore all things wild as we dive into the concept of wilding. At the center of the concept of wilding is the fact that all beings are connected. We each have a microbiome that's comprised of trillions of cells, with more cells that aren't human than those that are. We do not exist in a vacuum. We exist as part of a whole, and that is precisely what has landed us in the predicament of our current climate crisis, one which holds at its core an ethos that takes without giving back. We do not exist in a vacuum. Earth and all beings on it are alive. They are connected, interconnected, and interdependent. This chapter of Regeneration is broken into eight distinct sections, followed by an essay titled Wild Things by Carl Safina. And I have to say, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because I'm in awe of all things wild. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. Number one, trophic cascades. As we explore trophic cascades, we are introduced to Roger Payne's important work helping to define this phenomenon. Trophic means the act of feeding or obtaining nutrition. When a single species is thrown out of balance or a food source is disrupted, it has a cascade of effects. Some of these cascading effects can be predicted easily, and some of them can't. There are certain keystone species or a specific organism that glues the entire ecosystem together. Sometimes that glue is the apex predator in an area, like wolves or grizzlies. In the Monterey Bay, one of the keystone species is actually the sea otter. The sea otter eats clams, fish, and, importantly, the sea urchin. Sea urchins dine on the roots of giant kelp, which sets the kelp adrift, destroying the forest that once stood there. When the sea otter is missing from a particular area of our coastline, so too does the forest. It dissipates. The once giant forests of kelp that stretched along much of California's coast have simply disappeared. They thrive mostly now in the Monterey Bay, where the sea otter thrives. You can drive north or south of the Monterey Bay and find that they're less abundant, if not entirely gone. And you'll find plenty of purple sea urchins and no kelp forests at all. Divers like me refer to these areas as purple urchin barrens. They devour everything, leaving nowhere for fish to hide, nowhere for abalone to feast, or sea otters to play. You'll see sea hares, a giant sea slug, rocks, purple urchins, sand, and not much more. The ecosystem collapses without the sea otter. There are three types of keystone species, predators, including the sea otter, ecosystem engineers like beavers and prairie dogs, and mutualists like the African red-billed oxpecker who perches on an ox's back to eat the insects there. Grazing Ecology 
In this second section, we are asked to think about the importance of grasslands and their ability to sequester carbon. Grasses have a complex root system that brings minerals up, creating healthier grasses. Grazers move over the environment, chewing its leaves but leaving behind the root system that sequesters carbon. The grazers fertilize the area, creating new and rich and healthy soil with their waste. Because grazers move through an area, the area has a chance to recover before the new migratory herd comes through. The land is not left bare. The soil does not blow away. The grasslands themselves recover using the very same root system the next season, and the next, and the next. This leads us straight into our third topic, wildlife corridors. Here I'll quote David Quammen's Song of the Dodo featured on page 72. Let's start indoors. Let's start by imagining a fine Persian carpet and a hunting knife. The carpet is 12 feet by 18, say. That gives us 216 square feet of continuous woven material. Is a knife razor sharp? If not, we hone it. We set about cutting the carpet into 36 equal pieces, each one a rectangle, 2 feet by 3. Never mind the hardwood floor. The severing fibers release small, tweaky noises, like the muted yelps of outraged Persian weavers. Never mind the weavers. When we're finished cutting, we measure the individual pieces, total them up, and find that, lo, there's still nearly 216 square feet of recognizable carpet-like stuff. But what does it amount to? Have we got 36 nice Persian throw rugs? No. All we're left with is three dozen ragged fragments, each one worthless and commencing to come apart. From 2001 to 2017, 24 million acres have been lost to development. Hardscaping replaces the growing and grazing wildlands of the past. Buildings, roadways, manicured landscape. The wilds are disappearing. Our wildland is fragmented. We know from experience and from Paul Hawkins' direct language in this section that three decisive actions are required to stop global warming. On page 73, Paul spells them out. Number one, eliminate emissions. Number two, sequester carbon. And number three, protect earthly carbon. When we build, we release earthly carbon. We destroy ecosystems. With these actions, we lose more species. Biodiversity plummets. Since the mid-2000s, migratory patterns have been cut off as development continues. He notes that 58% of elk, 78% of pronghorn, and 100% of bison migration have been blocked in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And here we pause for the story of Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell, a story that Paul shared with us in our interview. She tells her story in an essay titled, Wilding. She and her partner inherited a farm that struggled with productivity on clay soil. They started with a chemically fertilized and traditionally farmed approach, but shifted to regenerative practices and let the land literally go wild. They introduced a few species that could help them restore the environment, and they let it go wild. The land recovered. Today, that same land thrives as a nature preserve. This rewilding estate has helped the turtle dove to recover from near extinction in Britain, I encourage you all to read the essay by Isabella Tree. It's on page 76 to 79, and it's marvelous. Four, grasslands. Did you know that 15% of global terrestrial carbon storage is in our grasslands? That, and they store 91% of their carbon underground, where it is more secure during droughts and fire seasons than that stored in forests. 
Grasslands are declining more rapidly than forests because they are easier to clear for farmland and development. Not only that, but grasslands, they are actually reflective. They repel heat. As a result, grasslands are not an ideal candidate for afforestation projects, like those that we detailed in our last deep dive, forests. Rewilding pollinators. This is the fifth section in this chapter. Then I'll quote, Restoring and protecting migratory corridors, sometimes called nectar trails, is crucial to survival of these species. This is critical precisely because they travel long distances and are thus exposed to many threats, including drought, pesticide exposure, and habitat degradation. One key to their success is the reestablishment of native perennial shrubs along highways, at the edge of crop rows, or even in your yard. Ensuring these flowerful bushes are established along a corridor north to south and south to north is key to migratory pollinator success, from the monarch butterfly to the long-necked bat. 6. Wetlands. Wetlands cover 4% of the land and contain six times more carbon per acre than grasslands. Peatlands protect 650 billion tons of carbon, and for comparison, there is 885 billion tons in the atmosphere. Quote, Wetlands remain the most diverse and productive habitat on the planet, repositories of carbon, diversity, and life. Wetland variations are endless depending on the soil, clime, depth, and ecosystem. They can be seasonal or permanent, freshwater or saline, and come in a myriad of shapes, forms, and places. They are feeding grounds for migratory birds, sanctuaries for beavers, sloths, otters, and capybaras, nurseries for spawning fish, mollusks, and crustaceans, ponds for egrets, herons, and cranes, and refuge for alligators, frogs, snakes, and turtles. Now, draining wetlands in the name of progress creates serious challenges as biodiverse habitat and carbon sink is destroyed with it. Recently, wetland restoration projects are returning dried land back to its wetland roots. In 2001, the Dixon Waterfowl Refuge began one such project. They began removing a network of underground pipe that had been laid to drain the wetlands that had been successful in leaching 9 million gallons of water and dumping it into the Illinois River each day. Once completed, and once all of this was eradicated, lakes refilled, Birds returned with 915 species of plants, insects, invertebrates, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals. And as we head into the next section, we get to bring much of this together. We're going to talk about a keystone species that helps return wetlands to the mainstay. Beavers. From the 1700s into the 1900s, beaver populations dropped from 60 million or more to only about 100,000. They were hunted for fashion and warmth. They were hunted for their fur. You know, we once thought that they destroyed ecosystems, but now we understand that they truly create them. Recent conservation efforts have resulted in population rebound to 10 to 15 million, resulting in marked improvements in wetlands and restoration of salmon habitats in some areas. You can look at the habitats they create with slowing water. Paul goes on to quote an environmental journalist's book on beavers. Ben Goldfarb writes, Beavers, by capturing surface water and elevating groundwater tables, keep our waterways hydrated in the face of climate change-fueled drought. Their wetlands dissipate floods and slow the onslaught of wildfires. They filter pollution. They store carbon. They reverse erosion. And whereas our infrastructure is generally inimical to life— 
They terraform watery cradles for creatures from salmon to sawflies to salamanders. They heal the wounds we inflict. Now, I loved beavers before. This curious rodent that safeguards itself from predators and cold winters by modifying its environment? Now, I regard them with the utmost respect. Number eight, bioregions. Bioregions describes geographical areas that are defined by their unique landscapes and ecosystems. In order to ensure they continue to succeed, Paul postulates that we need to do three things. First, we need to identify and inform inhabitants about where they live. More than the city or state, what has that land historically been? Who lived there? What does the ecology actually look like? Second, we need to maintain and regenerate degraded natural systems. And third, we need to explore the idea of re-inhabitation to create more life in each bioregion. As he states, you can't manage what isn't measured. So it starts there. We need to know where we are now so we can develop a plan to return our land to its more natural state. Carl Safina's essay, Wild Things, concludes this chapter. He reminds us that millions of species are now threatened. In Germany, flying insects have declined 80%. A quarter of the world's sharks are now vulnerable. One in eight bird species are now threatened, as are one-fifth of all mammals. But conservation efforts, when focused, really do work. We just need to be specific with our goals and with our actions. Key examples include the bald eagle, brown pelican, the American alligator, and the American bison, and even the black rhino. Our work isn't done, nowhere near in fact, but there is hope. And here I'll close with the last bit of Carl Safina's essay. Quote, No one worked on all those successes, but someone worked on each of them, and that's what made the difference. It would help all of us and the cause of the world species if we think more granularly, speak more specifically, focus on what can be meaningful, and stay observant of all the many beauties remaining. Beauty is a single creation that best captures all our deepest concerns and highest hopes. Beauty encompasses the continued existence of free-living things, adaptation, and human dignity. Really, beauty is simple litmus for the presence of things that matter. This brings our coverage of Part 3, Wilding, to a close. If you haven't listened to my interview with Paul Hawken, I encourage you to check it out. You can also go back to parts one and two at your leisure, as well as my upcoming coverage on Nexus, which is a deep dive into Paul's website, regeneration.org. It will enable you to stir the activist within with some great tools that are offered there. I'm including links to prior episodes and show notes, so I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com to check it out. You'll also find our complete transcript so you can revisit any of the quotes I covered in this section. And for the budding and experienced activists alike, I've created a new tool to help you unleash your inner activist. If you join our newsletter on caremorebebetter.com, you'll receive a download link to that guide as your welcome gift. Next week, we're going to cover the next section of regeneration, which is on land. We'll learn about regenerative agriculture, land restoration, compost, and vermiculture. So get ready to think about food and everything we do to produce it. And before we wrap, I'd like to introduce you to another show. It's another decidedly different show, and one that is fun, built specifically for progressives that enjoy pop music. So on behalf of my friend, Hannah, co-host of The B-Sides, I ask you, 
How do we define pop music? Are we all chained to the rhythm? What do we expect from our artists in an era that needs all progressive hands on deck? Why does every Carly Rae Jepsen album feel like a moral necessity? What can Britney Spears' career trajectory tell us about pressure and patriarchy? Will Rihanna ever release new music and pull us through the careening emergency that is American politics once and for all? Let's talk. The B-Sides is a podcast and internet home for progressives who love pop. Subscribe today wherever you listen to get bi-weekly musings from hosts Becky, Hannah, and Mimi on Pop's Place in Our World. Listen to the B-Sides on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and follow them on Instagram at Listen to the B-Sides. I hope you'll check out their show and let me know what you think. You can always send me an email directly from my website, caramorebebetter.com, or you can even just leave me a voicemail message by clicking the microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.